Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Wellness Plus Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Yoga Plus. Yoga Plus is a phone application that has all of your yoga needs, and we have all of your favorite yoga instructors on there with full 30-day series, as well as 14-day series, and just regular one-off yoga videos that are perfect for anything you're looking for, whether you're trying to build strength, improve your flexibility, or just kind of feel better all around. Uh, the Yoga Plus app is perfect for you, so definitely check it out. You can get a free 14-day trial now, so definitely go check that out. We are also brought to you today by Serene Team. Serene Team is a phone application that is meant to help you reduce stress, improve sleep, and just relax. So there's hundreds of tools on there from ASMR videos to ambient sounds to meditations, all that are meant to help you relax and sleep much, much better and really just reduce anxiety, which uh, many of us often need help with. So definitely check that out as well. Today on the episode, we have Lisa Kefauver. Lisa is a grief counselor, founder of Reimagining Grief, and host of her own podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Lisa and I had a really, really good conversation all about grief and why it is that people are so so bad at basically talking about grief, handling it, and helping others kind of go through grief. And we really kind of talked about the entire range of emotions that people go through and how we can better understand those emotions and better help our loved ones and friends kind of handle and experience those emotions as well. So really, really good podcast. Lisa was was really insightful and kind of helped me really look at how I handle grief. And, and so it was really, really awesome. So you guys, I think, will enjoy it a lot. Um, there's a lot of really good stuff in this one. So before we go, please, please leave us a review. Leave us a review so that we know how we're doing, and it, it really helps us a lot. All right, guys, enjoy the show. And yeah, and so Lisa is coming on with us today. I'm really, really excited to get talk to you about this yeah. because I think it's a really important topic of grief that a lot of people don't understand a lot about. Um, and I think it, it, it's a daunting thing, grief, when it's because it's really something you're facing yourself with. It's it's very difficult to to get help with grief. Yeah. It's a very internal battle oftentimes. Absolutely, um, absolutely. So I'm really excited that you're going to come on and obviously, kind of like you were saying before, bust some of the myths about yeah. grief. And we can talk about, I guess, the, the there's always the seven stages or how many stages of grief. I mean, bless Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, but I, I'm here to say... I don't think the stages are really a useful way to think about grief yeah, at all. Yeah. We can talk about that too. I'm interested to hear about just why maybe they're not a good yeah. way to think about grief. Because um, I've always found it to be an interesting thing when you talk about stages of grief yeah. because it seems very, um, it just seems very linear and very yeah. kind of, I don't know. I it, think it, that's what's appealing to people. It's really it's, linear and right. we live in a culture where we just want to 10 steps to have a better body and five tips to X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a real reason that we want that. We want to get through it. And with grief, we especially want it. It's not just about vanity, about getting healthy. It's like, I want to get through this painful thing and get to the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think part of the reason that I, though I think there are themes that are really appropriate from that stage theory, it's problematic because 
as you were saying, grief is so individual based on the relationship you had, the loss, your other experiences, that there is no, it's a little bit misleading to think like, okay, well, check, done mm-hmm. with stage one. Now I'm on to stage two. How long is it going to take to get me to you know, right. the seventh stage? And then I can be done. Right. And really the way I think about grief is it's actually a journey. It's not stages. And it will be with us till we take our last breath. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to be scared of that. And so we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And I've learned that as a result of a lot of professional training and unfortunately a very long grief resume myself. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that kind of leads us into what I really want to talk about. First is how you got into grief and what, what doing this you. work yeah. i know not many people are like it's a real conversation starter at parties let me yeah. tell you what do you do i work in grief oh okay. um <laughs> yeah it's so, gonna be a fun rest of the party right, night rest, for them. except i am fun and that's one of the things we're going to talk about later too i hope which is when you actually do the work of attending to your pain and grief you are actually better positioned than most people to really savor the joy and delight and amazement in life yeah. Actually. Yeah. So I am fun at a party, <laughs> even if I start by saying, yeah, I do grief. And then people are like, mm. <laughs> um, so really sort of, I would say I got into doing this work now because of personal experiences, then a lot of professional experiences, then some more personal experiences. So I had some early um, traumatic events that happened in my life that actually caused a lot of trauma and loss. Um, I watched some people um, dealing with really serious chronic illnesses and had to give up a lot of things in their life. And I think those experiences in my life influenced me to become a social worker. So I trained as a clinical social worker and practiced as a therapist and social worker in a lot of settings over the last two decades from foster care and adoption, which, of course, Mm. actually have a lot of issues around loss and trauma and lack of attachment. Worked in public housing, did therapy for folks who had experienced major losses, including death and their own illnesses. Um, And then in 2011, my husband was diagnosed with brain cancer and passed away in my arms, um, leaving me a widow at age 40 and a parent to our daughter who was only seven years old at the time. At the time, I was running a clinical department of a big family services organization, so I was back to work within a few weeks, which we can talk a little bit later about work culture and grief, and part of the reason I created Reimagining Grief, Um, and had to sort of navigate my way back to sanity through while working and raising a child. And then uh, a few years later was by the bedside of another friend who um, passed away in my arms from um, uh, MD muscular dystrophy. And through my professional time, and now it's sort of, it's been eight years since my husband passed, I was really grappling with what are the ways that we are so ill-equipped to talk about grief, talk about pain, like in our, in my family of origin, even my friends who I thought, who, if they ever watch or listen to this, you are amazing. You did well. And really aren't equipped because we avoid everything that has to do with pain and discomfort. Um, how companies, you know, like my job asked me to come back to work after two weeks because yeah. they were in a pinch. Um, how our jobs and our workplace culture isn't set up. And then just how our broader culture isn't set up. We're set up to fix things, get through things, come out stronger, mm-hmm. don't show your weak side, um, avoid pain at all costs. Pain is bad. And I'm actually kind of one of those weird people that say pain is good. I don't necessarily mean physical pain, but right. really leaning into your pain actually is what allows you to access the amazing things about life. So all of those 
personal and professional experiences just got me really looking around because I was grasping for my own resources. Like, yeah. what can I know about pain, grief and how can I learn about it and how are people talking about it? And I was realizing people weren't talking about it. Yeah. And that's really kind of what prompted me to start the company. And then also, um, because like you, I think you've understood that podcasting is a way for people to sort of absorb information in a way that isn't like super, it's not like going to a class or going mm -hmm. to a support group where you have to like bear your soul and get emotional or whatever. Right. Although I do believe in support. I mean, I'm a therapist, so I do believe in, <laughs> or I've been a therapist in the past. I do believe in support groups and therapy. I think podcasts are a way to like have conversations that people can listen to, see a bit of themselves in, mm -hmm. maybe learn something, try something out without it being so like intense in yeah. your face you know yeah you kind of get yeah. to listen to them you get to kind of listen in your own space yeah and you might recognize something about yourself mm -hmm. or that might you make you want to find a book that you you know reference a book or some kind of learning so that's sort of how i came to be the person who leads with yes i do agree and that you know like i invite people to lean into the pain that's sort of how i arrived at this point in my life wow yeah yeah, yeah i mean that is that's a lot of painful experiences that have kind of I'm sure obviously taught you a lot I guess yeah. or like have kind of yeah. helped they've mold transformed you. and yeah. shaped who I am and um I think it's sort of an either or I I I worry a little sometimes people be like you know you're stronger because of the pain and I do mm -hmm. think there's ways in which I see the world differently because of all the things that I've gone through and I've done the work to be able to see the world differently. I think just going through painful events doesn't allow you to have a new way, new worldview. It actually takes kind of the support and conversations like these yeah. to invite people to be stronger or be transformed, I think. Yeah. That's maybe that's a, a way I would say it. it. Yeah. That's a good way yeah. to put it for sure. Yeah. And so with kind of like you were saying when you were kind of searching for for tools or for support or trying to find Just out information yeah, information yeah. about grief um you said basically you started to find that most people just weren't really talking about grief they weren't i mean in my yeah i'm sorry i didn't mean no, to interrupt no, no, yeah no, you're fine. no i don't think people are talking about it i mean there's kind of your few standard books that are out there kind of on the market a few kind of celebrities later many years after um, my husband passed away, you know, Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook wrote mm -hmm. her book about it, but there's very few books about it. And, and even there's, there are many communities, including our community in Austin has, ha, do have like grief and loss centers and do have support groups. So I'm not saying that there aren't resources out there, but what I was noticing is we weren't talking about it in the really raw and real ways it is. We were talking about it sort of neatly Mm -hmm. um, kind of like wrapped up and like they got through it, they moved on. Yeah, like, right, yay, right. Yay, they moved on. Um, and there weren't any store. I wasn't seeing any stories out there that really reflected like what my journey was. Mm -hmm. And then that made me feel one of the things about grief is grief is extremely isolating mm. and disconnecting. And then when you don't see your story or your emotional experience reflected out there, you feel more isolated mm -hmm. and you feel more like, Maybe this is just me yeah. and I'm crazy. And then because we aren't trained as human beings to really lean into pain and know about grief, everybody in our life who loves us to death don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. And when they don't know what to say, they just stop showing up mm. because they're worried they're going to say the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. But the problem is what you're saying by not showing up is your pain is icky mm -hmm. and it feels contagious and it reminds me that I too could lose my husband as an example or whatever the 
the grief story is. And it just tells the griever kind of you're bad, you're wrong for feeling this way. Mm-hmm. You're you make me uncomfortable. Again, right. nobody's in- right. intentions Completely aside. Yeah. Unintentional. Um and so I realized like that just just got me curious. I've just been a, and I'm a major curious person. So mm-hmm. it just got me wanting to dive into like how is do we as a culture talk about it? I've thought often about where do we first learn about grief and really where we first learn about it is our in our family of origin. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's got me really curious going back to my own story. But that also is actually how I open up each of my podcast episodes on grief as a sneaky bitch is I ask people, what's your first memory of grief? Mm. What did it look like? How did the people in your family, if it was in your family, mm-hmm. how did they talk about it or not? Right. Did they only show sad? Did they, you know, like sort mm-hmm. of like how did it start in your family? What maybe religious practices or community, what does that say about grief or not? Mm-hmm. And then kind of like, what does your workplace culture look? What does American culture look like? Mm -hmm. It just got me interested in the ways we talk about grief at all those levels. If you think about it here in America, we were built, excuse me, we were built on pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to succeed. If you don't succeed, it's just you're, you only have yourself to blame. Don't ask for help. Yeah. Like our, our cultural messages are really antithetical to actually what healthy grieving looks like. Yeah. And also our culture is very, you know, we, especially as we've, you know, evolved over the last few hundred years, is very not just individualistic, like your success is tied to your own individual work ethic and, Mm -hmm. you know, God-given talent or whatever. But it's also, we don't live in big families. We don't really live in communities. Most of us are friends we communicate with on social media, not in person. So there's all these things that are happening kind of at the cultural level and the family level and the workplace culture level that don't actually encourage us to do grief well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if I there's like, such a thing. Oh, de- yeah. <laughs> I mean, it seems like there definitely is yeah. such a thing. Um, and yeah, kind of like you're saying, it seems that for sure, I don't know if people have ever been that great about dealing with grief at, on a cultural yeah. level in yeah. America because of a lot of the things you're saying right yeah. there. I think that's definitely pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, with the pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality and things like that. And then now with, um, you know, with a lot of these technical or technological changes, I I feel like even beyond just on grief, but just on human personal levels, people are really struggling to connect anyways. Absolutely. And so if you can't even connect on a base level, just, just, you know, you see people out, they're not really, a lot of people aren't connecting as well as they used to. A lot of people are just on their phones. They're listening to music. They're doing different things that are, which I think is causing personal suffering at the mm-hmm. like intrapsychic level, but I also think it's what we're why we're seeing so much like metacultural conflict is mm. because people aren't connecting in ways and seeing their shared humanity yeah. amongst each other. We're only sort of seeing these polar messages. Yeah. I mean, not to get political, but I think that's I think that is rippling down to or rippling up, kind of goes in both directions mm-hmm. because culture influences us, and then we influence culture keeps us completely disconnected yeah. and isolated and um, it really causes so much harm. So I think of loss and and primarily I work and talk around death loss, but I also mm-hmm. think about and talk and work with people around like major accidents or chronic illnesses that have had them have to give up a kind of future trajectory mm-hmm. or even a significant divorce or other things. But loss has totally appropriately a major pain response. Yeah. As it should. We don't do pain 
in this country at all. We're like, oh, my God, hurry up. Band-aid it, fix it, put a pill on it. You know, like put it away in a quiet, dark room and wait till they emerge. And what happens when we do that is we actually cause suffering. Mm. We actually cause unnecessary suffering. So part of why I'm trying to like aerate these conversations and try to sort of bust myths and really my sort of vision is to change our narratives of grief, like on at the national level. That's like my big dream that mm-hmm. we're going to, we're going to do it together with you and you, <laughs> and we're going to do that. And I think it starts with language. And part of that is our just sheer avoidance of pain. And mm-hmm. that when someone says I'm sad or I, I just don't know how I'm going to go on or whatever, people immediately react with like panic, fix it. They mm-hmm. show up in the fix it mentality then people feel isolated or wrong or weird. And actually what you're telling them when you just tell them, hurry up and fix it is, oh, I'm not going to come to you again because you're not actually going to listen to me. So then we create isolation. And that isolation is what creates all that unnecessary suffering. Mm -hmm. So the pain was going to be hard enough to get through. And now I think there's a lot of things that we do in our practices that actually cause us unnecessary suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's at that cultural level, too. And that unnecessary suffering really ties back to what you were talking about, which is just the ways in which we are completely disconnected from each mm-hmm. other. If you think about it, how we connect right now is on social media about all the good things that are going mm-hmm. on. Yeah, for we're like, sure. I lost weight. I got married. I got, had a job. I have 12,000 followers. I right. have friends. And again, I think there's a I use social media to deliver my daily invitations. I think there's a lot of ways in which some technology has actually been positive. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think we only connect with each other sort of in combative ways, mm-hmm. you know, like if you think about like the political discourse that's going on. Yeah. Or at the very surface of who we are, mm-hmm. our jobs, our health, our looks, our yeah, whatever. Very, yeah, for sure. And then means we don't actually know each other or see each other. And then we worry, well, I don't want to share my pain story with you, Ryan, because when I look at your Instagram feed, mm-hmm. I'm not picking on Ryan. I don't know about his Instagram <laughs> feed, but, you know, I'm just saying like, you're happy, you traveled, you did this, you did that. And so now I'm thinking, well, it's been three years. I guess I should be over it. Mm-hmm. We can talk about the word should, by the way. Yeah. Should, it will be banned from from my vocabulary. Then we start to think, oh, I should be over it. I shouldn't talk with people about the pain because Ryan doesn't want to hear about it because Ryan's outliving his dream, doing his work, mm-hmm. right? So there's ways yeah. in which that just doubles down our isolation. Oh, yeah. I think definitely. I think especially with like the Instagram lifestyle yeah. that has really, really taken over. Yeah. You totally, yeah, you only see the the beautiful, like, most amazing parts yeah. of people that they want you to see. I'm in Bali bathing on the beach, yeah. you know? Yeah, and, it's, and it makes it so much more difficult for, one, for you to want to kind of, like, connect with these people yeah. on these real deep ways. And be vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. And, you, and it's going to yeah. make you feel, kind of question maybe the grief or pain or whatever that you're feeling within yeah. yourself because you're looking at everybody else on, on Instagram. Right. It's like, man, this person looks so happy. They're doing all this stuff like why 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 am i not doing that why yeah. do i feel this way and i feel like it is even more further isolating kind of like you were saying absolutely um because we're only seeing mirrored this mm. one piece of ourselves mm-hmm. or one piece of the person and so we're it's making us sort of question our own vulnerability and then to your point so i don't want to reach out and be vulnerable to you to say like i'm really like i don't want to get out of bed today or you know, grief is such a sneaky bitch. I was crying in the car for two hours yesterday and I wanted to call you, but I didn't want to bother you. Mm-hmm. And because 
you on the other end, again, not you, Ryan, but you, the other person, hasn't dealt with their own pain Mm -hmm. and their own grief and figure out how to be vulnerable, you, even if I did reach out to you, you probably wouldn't know how to respond. Mm -hmm. So part of what my message is, is not just let's change our vocabulary and get really open about this. So it's twofold. So we can be better for the people in our lives when they need us, but it's also so that we can actually be better for our own grief journeys because newsflash, 100% of us, no one's escaping this, 100% Mm -hmm. of us are going to face grief and loss possibly and probably multiple times in our lives. Yeah, And so let's not run from it is sort of my message. Mm -hmm. Like let's actually get curious about what it's like and what it isn't like so that we're better equipped to sort of approach all of the emotions that happen. Yeah, And that's another myth. I think people think grief grief is like just sadness and Mm -hmm. crying, Mm -hmm. but grief is a lot of things. Yeah, And that's one of the things I'd love to talk about a little yeah, bit too. Yeah, please, please do. I, definitely. I think that's a good good way to get into it. You know, that. I think we think about that. So we think about the grieving widow or widower at a funeral or the parent who has, um, you know, is at the funeral of a, of a child. Um, and I've been to those as well. And the sadness and the pain and the sort of the heartache. And, and we can all sort of relate to that. It feels scary to us because, again, it's a reflection and a mirror of something that we don't want because it reminds us, could that be me? Mm-hmm. And the chances are someday that might be some version of you. Yeah. And we're all sort of comfortable with that. But I think the thing about pain responses is there's an entire spectrum of emotions that we have at our disposal in our lives. And pain actually, and grief in particular, brings out a lot of them, including, I think, one of the most under-talked about one, which is just rage Mm -hmm. and anger. Anger. For sure. um, and I just think as a culture, we're not really good at handling that. I think we are especially not good at handling that coming from women in our culture. Mm. I think women themselves aren't good at handling their own anger because we've been taught angry is not the domain of women. I mean, mm-hmm. I will speak for myself. Anger has been one of the biggest emotions that I've really worked at befriending in a way, being curious about as opposed to like shoving away or mm-hmm. judging myself about having them. So I think, um, and what happens is when we don't, so I think anger is sort of underutilized and when anger doesn't get to get expressed externally, and I'm not saying go yell at like everybody or, you know, although I might've snapped at a few people, you know, behind the counter over the, over time when I was, you know, ready to cry. But when we don't express our pain and the, and the form it takes in the form of anger, we end up turning it in on ourselves. Mm -hmm. Or those around us. For me, I was a parent of a seven-year-old, so there was always a concern that, like, how is my unprocessed anger going to come out in the lives of my kids or my patients? You know, yeah. I had therapy clients and and student interns at the time. So, I think, how can we be more curious and be more like, what is the instruction of anger? What is anger? What is that emotion teaching us? And mm-hmm. that emotion is, in part, teaching us we had a story, we had a plan, there was a deal made. You know, I married Eric and we were supposed to be married until we were like, you know, old and gray in a rocking chair. Or mm-hmm. uh, my dear friend had a baby, was so excited about the pregnancy. The baby was stillborn. Mm-hmm. You know, she and her life, her husband and her whole family had planned a life. Mm-hmm. And the anger is really about the ripping, the sort of confrontation about the stories of our lives that just got torn right. to pieces you know, in that moment. And so if we don't express that anger in a really productive way, and we can talk a little bit about that, we end up 
turning it on ourselves and being angry at ourselves and the world or sort of it becomes dirty pain. There's a great author who wrote a, a book around trauma called Grandma, uh, My Grandmother's Hand, and he talks about clean pain and dirty pain. And mm -hmm. I think in a way in which if we don't really attend to the emotions and the trauma or the grief, including especially anger mm -hmm. and the pain that's been caused us, then we end up kind of creating dirty pain, which means it kind of comes out in ways that other people and other places and other spaces that I'm sure confuses the heck out of those people and causes mm -hmm. them pain, but then we also didn't actually get rid of it. We're just still carrying it around. Right, You know. right, definitely. Um, so that's one of the reasons I think I just want us to be all a little more curious and comfortable with like, what are the whole spectrum of emotions? Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that might be interesting to explore a little bit is, um, figuring out ways in which we can learn to be more open and curious and vulnerable to our, our emotional spectrum, especially, what some people would call the negative ones, like mm -hmm. sad and angry. I think of emotions almost like on a spectrum, mm -hmm. right? Or a rainbow or whatever metaphor you can think about. And when we have a trauma or a loss experience like a death, we're kind of tapping into like sorrow and pain and sadness and anger and rage and all those things over here. And what happens is through all those kind of scenarios that we talked about, and because it's hard and we don't know how to do that because we think if we open up to it we're going to get swallowed whole mm -hmm. and we can talk a little bit i call it the black we it's like the black pit of grief so we just kind of find ways to keep busy mm -hmm. shut it down yeah. move on i did three weeks of therapy i'm fine or you know whatever yeah. our thing is or we do that to ourselves or other people do it to us it's been a year so mm -hmm. you know or it's okay it's been three years or whatever those things are but when we stay busy and we don't invite the emotions in when they come and just get really curious. I know you guys talk a lot about like mindfulness practices mm -hmm. here. We can yes. talk about that. So when you don't get curious when the negative feelings come and you shut it down, you may have like borrowed yourself some time, mm -hmm. but it didn't go anywhere. Right. The pain and the anger and everything is still there and it's going to show up again in those ways of dirty pain or it's going to mm -hmm. like pop up somewhere else. And maybe even worse than that, is that you actually have just like squished all the other emotions on the spectrum of your emotional range. Hmm. So I almost think about it like muting a rainbow or something. Okay, yeah. So if you've muted down, because you didn't actually deal with it, if you've muted down the pain and the anger and the sorrow and the devastation, the bewilderment, all the things that come with your pain, you don't get to, it's not a la carte. Mm-hmm. You don't get to choose, you know, like your emotions. So actually what happens is you are less able to really access joy and delight and amazement um, and like a real rich love and connection because you don't get to have access right. to kind yeah, of one or the other. Just smothered you've just everything. smothered it all. Everything started, you're kind of pushing it all yeah. to be numb almost. Yes, there's a numbness there. And I think we think we are, and I... And when I talk in the we, I'm throwing myself under the bus in almost every one of these scenarios. Mm -hmm. The reason I've sort of come to this learning isn't just because I've been a professional in the space. It's also because I've made all these mistakes. I've learned all these lessons. I won't call them mistakes. I've learned all these lessons along the way. So I did that too. I'm extremely, I went back to work after two weeks. Mm -hmm. I was in a group therapy and I was a practicing therapist and I reached out to friends who were amazing. Um, 
But I took on a new job. I moved houses. I actually moved from Michigan to Austin, Texas, and helped launch a, a created a nonprofit program here in town oh, wow. called Carebox Program um, with Jill, Jillian Domingue that helps cancer patients. So I was running that 70, 80 hours a week. Really. Wow. I was busy. Yeah. A lot of distractions. A lot of distractions. Yeah. And a lot of good things came out of it. My daughter's you know, 16, a junior. She's doing well. That nonprofit is serving cancer patients. You know, great things have happened. And when I sort of reflect back, I think, wow, I was spending a lot of time being real busy, mm -hmm. which was a really great way to anesthetize all those emotions that I didn't really want to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, and it really honestly... Though, and it's not like I didn't do any of the work and shame on me. There was work that was done along the way. But when I look back, I think there's just so much more. There were many more opportunities for me to lean into and be curious and vulnerable with myself and others around my pain that would have allowed me to really actually jump on and savor the way I do these days. The sort of just unbelievable joy and delight and amazement I feel about waking up every day, about mm -hmm. connecting with people about learning new things, everything, because I was just so busy kind yeah. of running from that stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that's a really, I mean, super common way for people to deal with their oh. grief. I think that's probably the go-to for people. I mean, any pain, right? Yeah, like it's like fix is, it, go, be busy. Find a way to get your mind off it. Um, yeah, just I kind mean, of ignore it. Yeah. When you think about all of the the anxiety and the depression mm -hmm. and the addictions and the eating disorders and those things, though there are a lot of chem chemical, like physiological, biological things that are happening there in those, so I'm not just blanket statementing. Right. But a lot of those behaviors come out of the running from some pain, whether it was abuse or grief or loss or trauma. Um, those sort of coping mechanisms maybe served you to survive, you know, that fight or flight mm -hmm. in that moment, mm -hmm. but they've become extremely maladaptive. So all of that busyness that we do, and then we're tired all the time. So then we just start taking caffeine pills and then mm. we just start taking whatever this thing or that thing, because I'm just tired all the time, as opposed to the invitation that I would say, which is slow down. Mm -hmm. What's the hurry? Right. Like you're going to be slow for the rest of your life if you don't slow down now. You yeah. just think you're not. Yeah. I think it's a lot of people looking for the like immediate fix yeah. or like a very. Uh, yeah. Just really the just the fix. short term. Yeah, yeah. Something that's going to make me feel better right now. Yeah. Or gonna maybe not make me feel better. Yeah. but At least take away the pain right now yeah. or wake me up right now or give me the energy right now. Or make me stop crying because I have to show up at work. I right. mean, I've been there yeah. where I like pulled into the office and I'm like, OK, Lisa, like. Yeah, it's like I have Practice a meeting in 30 you know, minutes. I've got to see a patient. You mm -hmm. can't be crying when you're seeing a patient. Get mm -hmm. it together. Yeah. And, I, and I, I really want to clarify, too. I don't want to minimize our need to find solutions. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying, like, there aren't moments, and it's totally appropriate in times, to find whatever resources and tools you have at your, at your fingertips to kind of, like, not every moment is a moment to be curious and vulnerable and get into your pain. Sometimes right. you have to show up to work and you've got to take care of your kids and you've got medical things to attend to. So there's no way in which I'm trying to say, like, you should always just sit, like, you, you know, you cross-legged style and stare at your pain for right. forever in a day. And what's prob the problematic thing is we just get really good at the fixing and the avoiding and the numbing. Mm -hmm. And we don't. Where we'll say we'll do that later, mm -hmm. and then later never, just really, never really comes. Get to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think that's, and then 
again, back to that sort of cultural influence. As a social worker, I always look at it's important to be curious about your own behaviors, but it's also important to put it in the context of kind of like those behaviors came from a language we learned and behaviors we saw in our bigger culture. Mm. And in our culture, not just with grief and loss, in everything, it's like tech, startup, business, everything is like more, bigger, better, mm-hmm. faster, scale, you know. Yeah. And none of those words, and I'm really, a, I'm, I'm a narrative therapist by training, so words and language are really important to me. None of those words really bring up ideas of meditation, curiosity, slow, mm-hmm. you know, progress. No, progress is not okay. It's like success yeah. or nothing. You know, are you over it or not? Have you moved on or not? And so no wonder we struggle with it so much. I mean, that's kind of the kindness and like the gentleness I want. I would want to invite people to give to themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like be kind and gentle um, and loving to yourself because how would you have known how to look into your pain, slow down, practice mindfulness, practice breathing, do the kind of techniques that you can do because when you look around, it's not really happening. No, no. I mean, even in a way, sometimes the health and wellness community, I would say, by and large, has been phenomenal. And I would say there are ways in which even the health and wellness community sort of at large, I'm talking about, encourages that same kind of uh, cultural problematic mm-hmm. thinking, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. 30 days and you will get ripped abs and mm-hmm. Um, if you just practice, just it's easy. Just do sit down and do five minutes of meditation a day. Mm-hmm. But nobody really tells you like, oh my gosh, five seconds in and I can't get my brain to shut down right. and my body to stop moving. There must be something wrong with me mm-hmm. as opposed to like, no, we live in a 24-7 world. Yep. You haven't been taught that. How would you know how to do breathing exercises mm-hmm. or do a body scan or be curious about the emotions that are coming through your door? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't know that. No. So again, that's part of like why I want to have these conversations. It's why I try to go into companies and do trainings and workshops. I help HR departments kind of look at what are the cultures and practices, both in policy but also in practice, that are happening in the workplace that really encourage or discourage people from processing what's happened to them. Yeah. Um, And then I do that through my podcast and other ways and through my writing. I've just been really trying to engage in conversation because I think that's what's going to change the ways in which we as individuals practice how we deal with pain and grief Yeah, is by working kind of from the person up, but also kind of from the culture down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of going from both. Kind of from both ends. Yeah. 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 I would agree 100 percent. Yeah. And kind of going back, I know you were you had brought up. The whole anger feeling yeah. That, yeah. What, that that you feel is really particularly difficult to to I guess understand or to be mindful of or un, just to express to express yeah. yeah and so what are are there any like ways that you would say is like a more healthy or appropriate way to express anger that's not going to be a detriment like how how can we work through our, ang- how our can anger we work through anger I mean I always say because of course I'm a proponent of it like find a safe person in your life. And that might be a therapist. That mm-hmm. might be a support group. Um, that might be a wellness community of some sorts. You'll mm-hmm. have to sort of explore that for yourself. In some ways, I find any a lot of the ways that are most helpful to express our grief emotions can be actually more helpful with someone who isn't close to you. Mm. Yeah. Because they 
might be experiencing their own grief over the loss of that same person. Like it might be your father who also lost, you know, like you lost your whatever, your brother, but they lost their son. Also because they want to, they don't want to see you in pain. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to want to fix you. So they're not going to be able to hold practice what I call holding space or bearing witness Mm -hmm. to the kind of ugly emotions on this end of the spectrum. So I'd say, first of all, kind of think through finding who are the safe places, people and spaces and places that might be there. And those are some examples. I think the other is just start by noticing like what's coming up for you when you're angering. So just doing some of that internal listening to yourself. So Mm -hmm. like, I'm feeling anger. I'm noticing I'm feeling anger. What is the anger about? Like, what are the words that are connected to that anger? Is it just a rage? Does it, does the rage, where do I feel it in my body? Mm-hmm. So I think you can definitely use some like body scan techniques. Yeah. Just like, where am I feeling it in my body? Try to check in on that. I also think you can just take a sort of loving curiosity to your anger as opposed to, I'll speak for myself, I always took a resistance and a judgment to my anger. Mm-hmm. Like, Lisa, that's not okay to think that thought. That's bad. You're a bad person. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have room for anger. I also really associated, like, anger with thinking I was going to go crazy. So I associated, like, if I let the anger in just a little bit, I'm going to go from, like, slightly angry Lisa to crazy, you know, yeah. Lisa off the end. So I think just also starting as those feelings come up when you're – hopefully in a quieter safe space or find a quieter safe space to be curious like what is this anger where is it in my body so you can do some body scanning noticing does it feel like is it in my gut is it in my jaw a lot Mm -hmm. of times people carry it in their jaw is it in my shoulders but also what is the anger is the anger over the death is the anger over I'm now the only person responsible to carry forward is the anger about how the death happened. Let's say it was an accident or a medical mishap or, or someone, you know, um, just whatever the kind of circumstances of the grief and loss, like start to be curious about what is the anger and what could it teach you? Yeah. Yeah. I think. Definitely. And, and especially kind of, you kind of touched on already, but basically I think a lot of people, like you said, you were, scared to let even a little bit of of the anger and a lot of people are scared and they feel because we're not used to practicing anger in a safe way i Mm -hmm. don't advocate being violent or being aggressive or even yelling or talking to somebody but we don't practice it so yeah when a it's like a it's just it's a foreigner Mm -hmm. in our emotional yeah repertoire yeah we're like who are you that does not feel good i don't know you Mm -hmm. i don't know what you're about are you gonna like take over my brain and my emotions and co-opt I'm not going to be nice Lisa anymore. I'm just right. going to be like rageful, crazy Lisa. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. it's important to to not yeah, kind of like you were saying about not judging the emotions yeah. either. Not not feeling bad for feeling certain ways because that just kind of leads to more suppression. More absolutely, you're just not dealing with the emotion. I think kind of like you're talking about these body scans using it's a, re- a lot of different mindfulness yeah. and slowing down. I think really just slowing, slowing down. down and saying it's okay to feel this way and trying to decide, figure out, you know, yeah, where am I feeling this? Yeah. Why am I feeling this? Because yeah. usually, especially with anger, it's there's, obviously you're angry that the event happened, but there's but underneath there's a hurt and yeah. a sadness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's an invite, like you were, the way you were talking about it, I was, I'm thinking about it like as an invitation, like how do we invite it in? How mm-hmm. do we slow down? It doesn't mean we're going to invite it to pa- unpack its bags no. and move in forever. Right. It's like a temporary guest. It's maybe visiting for an hour. Maybe it's staying for a long weekend. We're not saying it's going to be there forever. 
but invited in. Be curious. Why are you here? What are you trying to teach me? Mm-hmm. And also being sort of curious about like, how am I reacting to it? Is there a lot of judgment about myself? Are other people in my lives, by the way, sometimes that happens. So like mm-hmm. your well-meaning friend or your boss said, you just seem so angry all the time. So then they're judging you. So then you're like, well, I better tamp that right. stuff down. And yes, there are places and spaces to express anger or not. But all of those judgments get filtered into our own brain, and then we start judging ourselves. I call that the shoulds of grief. Mm. So um, I I think we do that all across all domains of our life. I have an expression, don't should all over me. (laughs) And I think it's really, too, if you start to listen for it, you're going to hear yourself saying it. I mean, not necessarily out loud, but in your mind. I shouldn't be angry. Mm -hmm. It wasn't their fault. Angry doesn't do me any good. My mom never liked it when I was angry. Or maybe I saw people who expressed anger growing up. Maybe you had a dad or a brother whose anger looked like violence Mm -hmm. or destruction. So then you start to worry, ugh, I have this feeling of anger. And it reminds me of this way I saw anger play out in my life that was not good. Mm -hmm. So I shouldn't invite it in. I shouldn't be curious about it. I shouldn't want to know. But the problem is, again, you can like take its bags just to take this metaphor to its grave. And, you know, throw the guest out the door and lock the door. But they're just going to be standing there waiting for you. And next time you open the door, they're going to be there. And anger is going to be there. So how can you, in doses, for a day at a time or an hour at a time, invite them in, be curious? Why are they there? What are they teaching you? Mm -hmm. I think that's true of our entire emotional kind of spectrum. Mm -hmm. But I think it's especially important for all those kind of hard emotions that we don't like to deal with, that we have to find ways... Um, to kind of invite it in and soften the power because otherwise they become this looming Mm. presence in a way. Mm -hmm. And even though you're trying to mute them, they become this overshadowing presence and they overshadow, again, happiness, connection, joy, amazement, delight, Mm -hmm. because you're always waiting for them to come knocking at the door and ruining it. Right. You know, many of us who have unprocessed trauma and grief and loss end up living a life that we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm. because we are so sure that that stuff is going to come knocking at the door. And one of the ways in which um, I think working through your grief, um, which we can talk about again, is a lifetime. Sorry to burst anybody's bubble. It's not going to like be wrapped up in a year. (laughs) There are things that are going to lessen. But one of the things that working through your grief allows you to do is to start for me. And I've seen this with the people that I've worked with and friends who've done done the apprenticeship with grief or the work Mm -hmm. with grief is that you're able to let go a little bit of that thinking of Mm -hmm. that other shoe is going to drop. The truth is another shoe is going to drop. I don't know if you saw the interview with um, Stephen Colbert and Anderson Cooper. I did. Yeah. Which was powerful. And one of the things I really appreciated about what Stephen Colbert said was like, life is full of hard things. Mm -hmm. It is. So, not dealing with the anger makes us like grasp on and worry that the mm-hmm. other shoe is going to drop and another hard thing is going to happen. And the problem is we've now missed all the good things that have happened in our present. Yeah. And we, because we have blinders on, we showed up maybe, but we were kind of, we felt it at 20% instead of 100%. Mm-hmm. We saw it, but we saw it with like, you know, really dark sunglasses on. We didn't really see the brightness of it. Or we were actually, by the way, we're just not showing up for things. Mm-hmm. Sort of mentally yeah. or physically or emotionally. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's uh, a big part of that is like there, there's obviously a very um, 
very popular idea of just being present. Yeah. That's a part of I know, mindfulness. Which it is a part of mindfulness. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it kind of ties into what you're saying here because when you're constantly worried or, you know, thinking into the future, like when is the next the thing, thing, you know, yeah. when is the next thing going to happen? Who else am I going to lose? Right. Who else am I going to lose? These are all, and, and what you're really doing is you're essentially, like you said, kind of not enjoying the time that is yeah. happening right now. Yeah. And you're you're worrying about things that at the end of the day you don't have. Full you have no control, control over. over. Yeah, and no. so the the things will come or they won't. Yeah, and you you still need to obviously you want to enjoy what's yeah. happening now. I mean, and, life is a gift. Yeah. every moment is a gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think you touched on so many really important things, Ryan. I mean, when you're in that worried state because you're running again, I think you know from those negative emotions. You know, you're sort of looking backwards and forwards at the same time, you know, Mm -hmm. which means your gaze isn't here. And I think a lot of that comes from we want a sense of control. Like, I don't want to believe that a car accident could come or a brain tumor could take somebody out or my baby could be born stillborn or whatever those things are. We don't want to believe them. Some of those things are going to happen. But we have this way of thinking that if we worry about them, that we're going to somehow change the trajectory and right. the outcome. And all we're doing is, as you said, not actually enjoying like the time I have with my husband in this moment or the time I have or the fact that, oh, my gosh, it's a beautiful fall day. Mm-hmm. I mean, not here in Austin, Texas. It's still 100 <laughs> degrees. Still 100 degrees. <laughs> and then I'm at somewhere in the country, it's a beautiful fall day and the foliage is changing. And, right. Um, so you're sort of missing those moments. Yeah. I do think I want to – having done mindfulness work in my therapeutic practice and in in my own personal life over time, I do want to say, I do worry a little bit, like we hear a lot, just be in the present, be in the now. And then everybody's like a, either like eye rolling or like I tried it and I failed. I'm just not good at it. Yeah. And so that's another thing I sort of want to debunk. It doesn't mean you're walking around, you know, zen out in every moment, like counting your, everything you're grateful for or whatever. It means how do you sort of, we have a lot of things we embed into our daily life practices we do. So how can you maybe embed in some small way connected to something you already do a moment or two or 10 or 20 or whatever hours, you know, it can be from 10 seconds to 10 hours in your day where you are, wow, I have the opportunity to feel well and be in my body and sit across the table from you, Ryan, and have a conversation that I'm really passionate about. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that bad things didn't happen in my past or that I'm not worried about, you know, what's going to happen to my daughter or what's going to happen to our climate or whatever the things that are worried about me? No, but also worrying about them doesn't change it. But right now I get to really say for like, this is a great conversation. This really brings me joy. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's more accessible than people think, and it doesn't have to look like one thing. Yeah. And I think part of the pressure, it's like, I think we think it has to look like, and by the way, I mean, I'm a big pra- fan of yoga and all kinds of meditation um, activities and practices, and I participate all over town. And you actually have all the tools that you need. Yeah. You got you have all the tools you need wherever you go. That's kind of the beauty of it. It's like mm-hmm. you can do that anywhere. Do you practice kind of presence and mindfulness? Yeah, yeah, I well, do. Yeah, um, I try and do. I try to do a good ten to fifteen minutes yeah. of meditation every night. Yeah, um, and so I try and be consistent with that. Uh, yeah. I don't do it every day. Yeah, because you know some nights it yeah. just doesn't happen, and that's and okay. that's okay. Yeah, and don't shit okay. all over yourself, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. I, I, that's the biggest thing is I really try not to 
worry or you know get angry or be like oh yeah. I messed now I've right. ruined everything because yeah. I missed one yeah. night. Um, do you notice if you've gone a long time that that what? Yeah, I think I do. Yeah, I think you using that kind of more consistent practice does make me a little bit more. It's not that I'm like you said. It's not like I'm walking around yeah. completely zenned out or anything yeah. like that. But I do think it, it does give me the a better ability to understand when certain things arise and not let them completely stress me out. Yeah. I'll experience what happens and then kind of work through it a little better, yeah. be a little bit more mindful of what I'm feeling and understand that yeah. it's not, not, not that it's not the end of the world, but it's yeah. just, it, it just helps me be a little bit more present in my emotions. Yeah. And I think it just helps me slow down. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing. I and so, so that's probably the other thing that I try and practice throughout the day. I will just think like, just while I'm sitting here for one minute, I'm just yeah. going to really just enjoy what's around me, you yeah. know, feel how I'm feeling. Just try and try and like sprinkle that in throughout the day is I think we really get so, helpful too. We get so ungrounded from our own body mm-hmm. and our own mind because we're living in the to-do list and the task and the place we have to go in the next appointment. And some of them are fun, planning the vacation or whatever. And we all sort of live disembodied from our own body. So mm-hmm. I think it's a way to do that. I think the other thing I would add about the presence is, especially as I think about it in relation to grief, is that presence and curiosity doesn't necessarily mean you're always sitting in blissed outness. Presence mm-hmm. can actually being present and attending to your house guest anger mm-hmm. or pain. One of the things that I really have found useful for myself um, and I like to think about is that none of our emotions are permanent guests. There are just guests. Mm-hmm. So like when pain comes and knocks me off my ass and I feel or anger, like when I feel rageful that here I am single and a widow and, you know, don't have Eric by my side. I feel it. And I also try to recognize like, oh, you're here for a visit. What is it teaching me? But also an hour ago you weren't here mm-hmm. and for 10 days you weren't here and for a month before that, and you used to be here all the time. You were like camping out on my doorstep, and now right. you're here less and less if we're talking about grief as a journey. Mm-hmm. And so I think in that way, really using those practices around presence to understand that none of our emotions are permanent. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it'd be Unfortunately, nice if like bliss yeah. and joy and amazement and uh, you know all the good things were kind of permanent, are permanent. But the good news and the bad news is they're not. And so when we can kind of practice noticing and being curious about why pain is visiting us in that moment or anger or sadness or sorrow, um, we can be more, I don't know, it's like we can be more fluid. Yeah. You know, we can kind of move through and be more open to learning as opposed to sort of rigidly being like, get out, go away, excuse me, you know, shut down, move away. Um, That kind of curiosity and recognition that there's not a permanence there. I think allows us to do the kind of growth that we have to do, not just in our grief journeys, but just in our life. I mean, our mm-hmm. life, we're, we're here to grow and evolve all the time. Yeah, and to evolve our story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I also think that as as bad as, or I guess as unenjoyable as yeah. those feelings are, such as pain and anger and sadness, sorrow, all those. Yeah, they're they're not good feelings, of no. course. No, but I do think they're really, really important feelings. Yeah. Um, one, dealing with grief. You, I mean, that, yeah. that is how they're going to come. Yeah. But two, also, I don't think you can really experience true happiness and joy without kind of experiencing the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Because I think 
thing, thing like happiness is so great because obviously yeah. it's happiness, but it's yeah. also because it's not it's not the sadness. I, I think yes. I yeah. think that that range of colors. It's kind yeah. of like it's kind of like thinking of like yeah. a, like the color wheel. Yeah. Whereas if you only ever had, yeah. you know, the beautiful, amazing feelings, yeah. it, those would eventually become kind of washed out. And you sort of take them. I mean, if you think about it, I you don't know. If, I've never lived in Hawaii. Dream someday. <laughs> but I can imagine if you see the sunset every day over the ocean, like maybe if you're not careful, you start to not actually see the beauty and that you appreciate that. Exactly. And it's when you live in snow-covered Michigan and then you go to Hawaii, you know, you appreciate yeah. it. I mean, it's kind of a silly metaphor, but I think it's... No, I think it's... Our it's, analogy, but it's true. It's Yeah, I think it's very accurate because it is... You, it, it, you can't just have... Kind of like you were saying, you, it's not a la carte. You can't yeah. just have the good and i think that's yeah. not only true in emotion i think that's good and or true in yeah. life and everything you do is it, nothing is going to be great always yeah and so i think you do need to embrace the full spectrum of of emotions that you're feeling the full spectrum of experiences For that sure. you go through because yeah. it does make you know a bad experience here will help you learn and grow yeah and that makes the good experience that much better absolutely right and then whenever you are in that good experience it's all the more reason to really, really cherish and enjoy that good experience. It does. And also, I think it connects back to what we were talking about earlier, which is when you've lived your kind of full range of emotions, you are so much better able to connect mm. with another human being at wherever they're at in their emotions. Mm. So if you haven't learned to sort of befriend sorrow or pain, when your friend's husband dies or child dies and you don't know what it feels like to do that work to sort of attend to your own pain you are really at a loss to connect with that person and show up for them and have that connection and that's part of that isolation mm. i'd love to talk a little bit about like how do we show up i, I was gonna ask okay that. Yeah. yeah i definitely think that's a good thing to talk about unfortunately i mean i am working i do writing every day so you can definitely check that out um at reimagining grief um on social media, but and I try to talk like little tidbits. Unfortunately, like everything else I've been talking about today, there's no like 10 top things you're going to do and you'll see articles on it and I might produce one myself. But here's a couple of kind of things to think about. Maybe it's almost more helpful to think about what not to do than okay. to do. Yeah. Um, first of all is do your own grief work. Like what is your relationship and beliefs about grief? Do you have beliefs that are like people just need to move on or we don't talk about it. So like check your own beliefs mm -hmm. at the door a little bit and do a little of your own examination first. Mm -hmm. um, check your assumptions and probably 99.9% .9 of you have them that it's your job to fix them. Mm -hmm. Their pain is real and it's normal and it's not your job to fix them. And even if it was your job, you couldn't do it. So mm -hmm. like check your reaction again coming from like the most beautiful good intentions but like check your fix it mentality at the door mm -hmm. you aren't going to fix it for them so i would say like check that at the door this is before you even like sent a card showed up at the funeral opened up you know asked them to if they could you could stop by whatever right um i would say talk less listen more i feel like this is a line from hamilton there but um <laughs> But I think it's really true. When we're faced with pain and discomfort, we always try to fill the room with mm. conversation. Mm -hmm. And it starts usually with, I'm sorry for your loss, which I'm on a campaign to ban that phrase. <laughs> Again, the intention is so good. I'm sure some people listen to this and be like, oh, that Lisa is such a hard ass. She's so mean. <laughs> but the person knows you're sad for their loss. 
They just want to know that you're here. Mm -hmm. That's all they want to know. They know, presumably, you knew the person and they love you and they're, they're sad for the loss. So I would say, talk less, listen more. My mantra is like, show up, shut up, listen. And sometimes, by the way, the listening is just going to be to silence yeah, or their tears or them raging against the world. But I think to the degree in whatever is setting, whether it's a work colleague, a personal friend, a neighbor, you know, a loved a family member, whatever it is, how can we sh know our own biases, understand that we're not there to fix it and show up and shut up and listen? Mm. It feels so antithetical to what we're taught back to the beginning of our conversation, which is like, do, go, build, fix, scale, more. Mm -hmm. So when we see something wrong with somebody because they're grieving, we want to do, fix, you know, make better, hurry forward. Um, so it really takes back to why it's so important for us to all practice presence and mindfulness. It really takes us actually being so much more in tune with our own ability to slow the heck down. Mm-hmm to show up for them. It requires a kind of patience and a kind of understanding. So those are kind of like the emotional ways to send, show up and prepare. I think there's some real practical ways. So don't say like, let me know if I can help. The person who's especially experiencing early grief, there's the thing called brain fog. They don't have short-term memory. They can't think straight. They've got so many responsibilities they never had before. I mean, they have to plan a, I remember like I had to figure out, are we cremating? Are we having a memorial or a funeral? Like, I have to get go to those, you know, government offices and get a death certificate. Like, people are having to do so much stuff. Don't make blanket kind of like, let me know if I can help. Right. Be concrete. If you're already in that person's life and your kid goes to school with that kid, say, hey, Sally, I'd love to take Julie to school with my daughter every day for the next two weeks. Would mm -hmm. that be helpful? And by the way, be prepared for them to say no, because we're not good at asking, receiving help. Mm -hmm. We are so bad at receiving help. Or that might work for them for one week, but then the next week it really doesn't work for them. They'll change their mind. Let them change their mind. Yeah. But be practical. Like, Or you know what? I go to Costco Sundays once a month. Um, I'm going to get a list from you, and next time I do a Costco run, I'm going to do that for you too. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to pay, although if you can afford it, do that. Because... Grief is extremely expensive if it's a partner who now has no income in your family or whatever mm -hmm. else is happening. Um, so, like, be practical uh, and proactive. I'd say the third thing about showing up for people that I think is a real missed opportunity, and I'm not even saying how long the list is because it probably goes on, but I think the third thing is showing up over time. Mm -hmm. We're all really good at showing up for the funeral and maybe the one-week anniversary, and maybe the one-month anniversary, and then maybe the one-year anniversary, which, by the way, if someone in your life has a loss and they're close to you, I highly, encouraging, I highly encourage everyone to put that person's loss anniversary in your calendar. Yeah. So you can remember to reach out at least on the anniversary. Mm -hmm. Now, grief doesn't just show up on anniversaries. Right. So... I mean, a la grief is a sneaky bitch. It shows up on Tuesdays or it shows up when somebody walks by and they have the same cologne as your husband or they it shows up when you see kids playing on the playground. And Yeah. But show up over time in different and the how you show up might look differently. So in the beginning, it might be showing up and shutting up and listening and literally getting down on the floor with them while they cry. And uh, six months later, it might be like, 
hey, I've been taking this yoga. I'm wanting to go to this yoga retreat because I'm trying to work on my own emotional stuff. Do you want to come with me? Mm -hmm. Because I'm wondering if losing Eric means like you might want to do some work around that. So I would say like showing up in ways over time Mm -hmm. because it helps them understand that they're not crazy for still having emotions Right. one month, three months, six months later. I'd say um, another thing that I would love for people to start doing better is saying their name, talking about the person. Mm. I think so often, I can't tell you how many times this has happened. It just happened this year, actually, with my family members. We were on a vacation. It was eight years later, and a, a family member of mine, we were looking at the sunset, and I could see she was sort of tearing up. And I said, what's going on? And she said, well, I don't want to say because I don't want to upset you. Mm. And I said, what? And she said, I just think Eric would have loved this vacation. He just would have been soaking this up. But I don't want to upset you by saying his name. And I said, and of course, I burst into tears. And I said, don't you think that I've been thinking about Eric every single day of this vacation? But it feels to me like I'm the only one carrying Eric's memory forward. And mm-hmm. all the work is on me to do that. And all the work is, and it's only me who's crazy for being in this beautiful place and being sad because Eric wasn't here. So saying their name, I think we worry about that often. If we bring up their name or if we share a memory that we have, we're going to upset the person. Right. And the truth is they're already upset. What they're more upset about is they can't talk about their person because they're seeing you're not talking about their person. Mm, Yeah. So say their name, say a favorite memory of how he, she made you laugh or he, goofed up at that event or whatever the the story is because you're going to help them feel like they're not alone in the burden of carrying that person's memory forward yeah i think that's that's huge because yeah yeah, like you said they they will always be thinking of the person yeah it's not like like it's It's not not like like, if you bring it up oops it's like oh i forgot about that (laughs) yeah it's they're always thinking about it and i think it's a really it's a beautiful way for like you said kind of you to help carry on all of these fantastic memories you yeah. have of the person because it's a great way to remember them and yeah and bring it, them bring them forward in our story yeah. and you're not the only author bringing them forward in your story yeah exactly because yeah. they're still they're still with you yeah i mean you know they're especially when you yeah. spend such a massive amount of your life if it's yeah. someone you've loved if it was yeah. a child whatever it is yeah they'll be with you forever right and i think it helps a lot for all the other people that also loved and knew them yeah to or loved and knew you even. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. To cherish and remember all of the fantastic things they did when yeah. they were here or whatever it may be. Yeah. I think it does do a lot and means a lot for people. I would say on the flip side of bringing up the person's name and carrying their memory, you know, bringing them their memory into the into the story of your conversations is important. Sort of on the flip side of that is don't be what I call a grief thief. Mm. So I think that's one of our biggest mistakes that happen. You show up and see somebody or someone introduce you to somebody and this happened to me all the time. They're like, oh, this is Lisa. She lost her husband. I'm always like, yeah. I have other qualities. Right. Remember, I'm fun at a party. But um, And people immediately, again, because they don't know how to connect, they want to connect and they go, oh, you know what? I also, my brother-in-law had a brain tumor, but his thing was fine and then he got operated on and he was fine. But yeah, I mean, I know what you're going through. Mm. And people always want to meet your grief story with their grief story. Right, right. Again, 99.9% of the time, the intentions are good. Nobody's out there trying to think like, I'm going to one-up you with my story. Right, right. They're saying like, oh, 
How I just I learned this. How can I connect? Yeah. And I can see that you're in pain and I don't know how to connect with you. So I'm going to connect with you. And I'm not saying that there aren't places and spaces to share your stories. I've become friends with many people who have had other losses. And we often talk kind of back and forth about the different aspects of our grief. But when you're showing up for the first time to, or in the fourth time to, especially in the beginning, to see that coworker, friend, neighbor, whoever in your life who just experienced some loss. Do not. That's again why it's like if show up, shut up, and listen. Is you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to say anything. Don't you know suck up the oxygen in the room by telling your grief story. You aren't actually creating a connection. What you're saying to the person is again under the radar. You're not saying it to them. Your story doesn't really matter. Your pain isn't unique, mm. and this isn't about you anymore. This is about me, the person who's telling you about my grief story now. Right. And that's not your intention. Nobody's intention is to go in to do that. So just be mindful that you're not, you're showing up in service to accompany them. If you're also grieving, by the way, that person's pain. So this is another thing I think about grief, like happens in concentric circles. So it's like the primary person. And then there's the people who are grieving around them. And the people grieving around them can kind of give support inward. But then those people are going to need support too. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, my mom and my dad and Eric's dad and my brother and everybody showed up and descended on our household and kind of, you know, swarmed Lily and I with love. But they also lost a son-in-law and a brother-in-law. And so they needed somebody to talk to about their pain around Eric. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't the person for them to talk to. They needed to kind of go like one concentric circle right, out. Like right. their neighbor, their colleague, their friend to say like, because now they're dealing with their own loss of Eric, the brother-in-law, son-in-law. But they're also like, they needed to go process, God, it was so hard to see Lisa crying. It was so hard to see... Lisa in pain, whatever. So thinking about where you are kind of in the spectrum of mm -hmm. like cl closeness to the center of gravity kind of of yeah. grief yeah. and kind of go out, kind of provide support inward and then seek support outward, yeah. I think is how I would describe that. Yeah, I think that, yeah. that's a really good advice yeah. to follow because yeah. I think yeah. that would that, that totally makes sense. Yeah. I think one thing that I know I've experienced myself before and I think a lot of people probably do experience too, is sometimes um, uh, during a traumatic experience, something, if you get the news of, you know, yeah. a loved one being lost or yeah. something along those lines, yeah. some people experience a rush of emotions really fast. Yes. Right? Some right. people really immediately feel... And process. Yeah. They, they kind of go through quick. Other people, I think, don't. They, it's very slow. Yeah. And so, and that's like, in my personal experience, that's how I've usually been a little bit slower where I hear about something happening and I don't, I, it's almost like I don't really feel anything right away. They're like a numbness yeah, and a shock it's more of a, Yeah, it's more of a shock and I, I just, it's often I just sit there, I don't have much to say. Yeah. And it's just taking a long time to process, I guess, the, the news that I've yeah. just learned or what's happening. Yeah. And then even from there, it, it's still unclear kind of what what emotions are coming in first. It's just like a very strange middle ground that yeah. I think a lot of people feel. Have you have you worked with people that kind of go through that a lot? Absolutely. And actually, I'm so glad you brought that up. I think that does happen a lot because like in every aspect of our lives, all of us process information differently. Some of us are kind of I'm a, I happen to be a person who's kind of like I iterate, I think all the time. I'm I kind of react quickly, mm -hmm. according to my teenage daughter, maybe too quickly <laughs> sometimes. And some people just sort of in any aspect of their life, you know, you've been in meetings where some people hears an idea and they can riff off of it and think about it, and other people need to like 
think about it. They're maybe more quiet. They don't express outwardly, but they also might have the most amazing idea about mm-hmm. the thing. But they need to go back to their desk, kind of think on it, and they actually might even have a better reaction or solution or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we all have different ways of processing. And then that's like compounded in terms of grief because often, as you said, it's it's not just like news at a meeting. This is a shock of a a, a disruption of our lives because mm-hmm. someone that's mattered to us is, is gone and maybe gone in a, hor- a horrific way. And then the challenge is that often happens. So I see this oftentimes in families, mm-hmm. especially or in, in work, I mean, in um, workspaces and even just kind of in larger friendship groups is then people start to judge mm. other people's way of grieving. Right. Like, Ryan doesn't seem like he's really sad about the news because he's not crying, but everybody else around the table is crying. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's such a, and this, I'm so glad you brought this up, it's such a danger, it's such a risk. Yeah. So again, one of the lessons we all need to sort of think about as we do our own grief work is everyone grieves differently. There's no right or wrong way in that, to, especially in terms of expressing what your grief looks like and the timing of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that because, we actually cause more damage when we compete or judge each other. Yeah, definitely. And because I, I was going to say also on like the flip side of that is the person, if you are in like a larger group where everyone's being very expressive in their emotions yeah. and for the person that isn't yeah. or that is taking a long time to process, doesn't really know what's just internally, they aren't knowing yeah. what emotions are coming up. I think it's easy for that person to kind of start judging themselves as well because they see all these for people sure. that are what's wrong with me? Yeah, why like, am I why not am more I sad? Not feeling this way? Yeah. So I think it's just like a on both ends, like a yeah, you have to be careful yeah. of it. Yeah, I absolutely think. And I see that happen. I see that in family systems. I see that happen in my family system, actually. We have quite a few different of us. We have quite a few family members who have processed Eric's loss and then our good friend Joe's loss differently. And there's absolutely judgment of the other, which again causes more disconnection. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't really want to be around you because you're not doing your grief the way you, I'm doing mine or the way you're doing your grief makes me feel uncomfortable. Right. And then other people are feeling like, well, maybe I'm not doing my grief right because we already have so much hang up because I don't look like so-and-so doing their grief because I'm really quiet mm-hmm. or I'm only feeling rage or I'm only feeling sadness and they seem to be... Or I haven't been able to go back to work and they've been able to go back to work or whatever. So I think there is that self-judgment. And then that's kind of, again, back to what I was talking about at the beginning, there's sort of pain and then there's unnecessary suffering. And I think our inability to hold space for one another in the different ways we grieve actually causes unnecessary suffering for sort of everybody involved in that grief circle a little bit. So I think just to be mindful that it's it's your way and to just go back to those original practices be curious about like why am i numb mm-hmm. this is it just might take me a little while to do it or to feel it or to come up you know just be curious about it and not be yeah. judgmental for yourself and for others yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah um and, and one other thing um is I, th- I feel like a really common question that people have or wonder about themselves is kind of wondering when it like when is it okay to feel happy Yes. Right. Oh like, man, that's such a, a big one. Because a lot of people one. start to get might even because if they feel a sense of happiness too early on, they all of a sudden feel guilty. Like, why do I feel I shouldn't be happy right now? Yes. Again, and, that word should. Exactly. Yeah. The, yeah. Should <laughs> such a it's also should is also a sneaky bitch. Um, should sneaks in. Yeah, I think that's a really 
a hun- I think I would say pro- my guess is a hundred percent of people have gone through grief had have, have had one or more point along the way mm-hmm. where they had that exact experience where they laughed or they looked forward to something or they felt feelings for somebody if it was you know like a romantic partner that's mm-hmm. lost and then the memories come back and then there's a lot of judgment. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember vividly the first time I laughed mm-hmm. a few months after Eric died. I was watching the daily show back when John Stewart was on it and I, cause I couldn't sleep. So I didn't sleep and I'd be up all night just watching things to be busy and distract myself. Right. And I remember laughing out loud in the living room, like at three in the morning in the dark, my daughter's asleep in the other room. And I remember laughing at something John Stewart said. And then immediately feeling so much guilt and shame and so mad at myself that I basically talked myself into crying again, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like at the end of that, because I thought there's so many stories we have in our head. Like, oh, well, now that means I must not have loved Eric enough or I'm not carrying his memory forward or I'm not doing him justice or you know, whatever the stories are that we tell in our head. So I think, again, that's an invitation to find grace and curiosity with yourself. So like, if I am happy again, huh, What? that's an interesting gift. Mm -hmm. Would Eric have wanted me to be happy? I keep saying about Eric, but whoever, would that person have wanted me to be happy again? Did they love that we laughed together, for instance, if laughter was what was happening? What did I love about their laugh, et cetera? Mm -hmm. To just sort of be curious. And again, savor it because happiness isn't going to stay either. So how can we find ways to just savor each new emotion as they come up, some of which we want to invite to leave and some of which we want to find ways to cultivate and stay like happiness. But Mm -hmm. I do think that's such a common experience. And really my only invitation is invite it to stay. Don't judge it. Be okay with it. We, we, you are still here and you are still alive and your, our jobs are to sort of feel into the entire expanse of our, our emotional experience. And that includes happiness. Mm-hmm. And there isn't, again, sorry, there's no manual or top 10 tips or a calendar that you can like, okay, well, I made it today, 65. Right. I'm allowed to laugh today. Woo. <laughs> it's okay. But day 64, I couldn't have laughed. That wasn't okay. So I think just kind of having that grace and patience that like your happiness is going to come. And also the flip side, like, when you're a concerned friend because you haven't seen your friend laugh and you Mm -hmm. feel like it's been two months or it's been three months and I haven't seen them laugh. Well, two things. One, you haven't been around your friend 24-7, so they might have laughed or smiled or been happy. But two, maybe that's their course and maybe that's an invitation to show up and shut up and listen Mm -hmm. and listen for the stories they're talking about. Are they talking about moments of happiness yet? Are they talking about accessing resources of support in town or not? So instead of going in like, you just need to be happy or I'm going to take you to the comedy show so you can laugh when probably they're not ready to just kind of be curious about like what might be keeping them from accessing that happiness or are they accessing it and they're just not telling you about it because by the way, they feel guilty for being happy and you just don't get to see it. Mm -hmm. I think I did that a lot. Like when I showed up in public spaces, yeah, I found myself being mindful not that I was trying to look sad but I found myself being mindful of like especially you know it was sort of like a group of eight couples and Eric and I and then when Eric died it was like seven couples and me Mm -hmm. and I remember showing up in kind of community spaces where everybody knew him and I remember thinking often like 
what is someone thinking about me if I'm having a glass of wine or laughing at somebody's joke or making plans to go to a concert? Is anybody there judging me for being okay with being in this room now without Eric? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think there's a lot of, it's the sort of insidiousness of how grief shows up kind of everywhere. Yeah. And so to just be mindful that the person, your friend or whoever's at that party with you to say like, it's nice to see you laugh. Yeah. And like, make it okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I think it's, I would think that it would be helpful for people to yeah. kind of, yeah, reaffirm you on yeah. showing the the happiness or yeah. whatever the positive emotion may, might be. Absolutely. So I would think that would be helpful for them. Like, it is okay. And the truth is we can hold more than one emotion kind of in a space and time. So some people might react to, it's nice to see you happy with oh, well, I'm not happy all the time. I'm just happy right in this minute. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah. Like, I'm happy now, but half an hour ago I wasn't happy, and that's okay, and that's true of any spectrum. But to for the emotions that, as we're grievers, feel and worry about that people are judging us about, it's nice, back to sort of the questions about how do you show up for somebody else. It's nice when a friend or someone you love can sort of affirm, like, hey, I don't even know if you noticed, but I just watched you and you were like smiling and laughing and having a good time for the last half an hour. And I just thought I'd like kind of let you know and tell you how happy that makes me. Or yeah. I'm excited to see that. Because sometimes we don't even kind of recognize that it's yeah. been happening because mm-hmm. we're just so used to being in this one mode of being mm-hmm. all the time, sad or angry or whatever. Right, and you right. sort of don't realize like, oh, yeah. You almost kind of gloss I guess over I, it a little I bit. I guess I was laughing or happy or you know, having a good time in this moment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So important. So important. Yeah. Well, thank you so much yeah. for coming on. Um, I really enjoyed getting to talk to you about this. Would you say, is there any kind of way you'd want to tie it all up here at the end? Or, I mean, we went over a lot of things. We did so kind of tough. go over a lot of things. Yeah. I would say like grief is a journey. It's one that each person is going to f- navigate their own way on. Um, there is no sort of one right way, and we're all going to navigate it. So how can we all, I would just say the invitation is, how can we all get more comfortable by starting with looking at what are our own grief beliefs and practices, and how might that allow us to show up better prepared for somebody else and for ourselves, you know, when that day happens. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you again so much, Lisa. Yeah. It was really, really good to meet you and get to talk to you about this. Thank you. Um what, so your podcast is? My podcast is called Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, and it's on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and you can also find it on my website, which is reimagininggrief.com. Um, and uh, our latest episode is actually up with a local uh, restaurant entrepreneur here in town. Oh, cool, um, yeah, with the about, Chilantro. With right? Jay Kim of Chilantro, talks really openly and vulnerably about um, the loss of his sister over the um about a year and a half ago who had been sick for many years and some of the themes we talked about today he really talks about how that those lessons really taught him to think differently about life and business and his Mm. personal life and having an attitude of gratitude so check it out yeah yeah Yeah. definitely i'm gonna go check it out because i did actually listen to the first little bit of it yeah fantastic the rest of it i've got a couple more episodes i need to produce and they'll be out soon in the next month too awesome well yeah i'll keep i'll follow up yeah keep listening to those too awesome well thank you again lisa yeah thank you the wellness plus podcast copyright 2018 target public media llc all rights reserved